This is the Design Goggles podcast on BNB Radio. Checking out architecture and design is a pretty good way to keep track of how the world changes. Designers have a unique way of looking at cities, and Seattle is a city that's changing fast. More people are moving here every day, and understanding what's different and what's next has never been more important. So, put on your design goggles and join us in checking out the view. I'm Charles. I'm a designer here at Borden Vellum. I live in the Central District neighborhood and I've been a Seattleite for two years. And I'm Rachel. I'm a designer here at Borden Vellum. I live in the old Ballard neighborhood and I grew up here in Seattle. This week's show is titled The Seattle Single Experience. In a city that was once known for a movie called Singles, Seattle is ironically a pretty tough place to meet people. Surrounded by such a picturesque Pacific Northwest landscape and with a vibrant and dense urban center, Why do Seattleites have such a hard time finding each other out in the world? Have the spaces in which people meet organically lost their importance in the age of Bumble and Tinder? Or are they more important than ever now that technology has given this introverted city a way to connect with so many? To help us answer that question and more, we are joined by Danielle Koval from Talkify, a concierge matchmaking service. Danielle, thank you so much for making time to sit and chat with us. Thanks so much for inviting me to be here. I'm so excited. So, so, how long, Danielle, have you been in Seattle? This September will be two years. What neighborhoods have you lived in since you moved here? Well, when we first moved up here, we actually moved in with family before we established. We kind of made a bold and, and crazy decision, my husband and I, to move up here without jobs and a home and just kind of start this new adventure in our life. Looking back, uh, maybe not the smartest decision, but I wouldn't make any changes. It was so much fun. We lived on Whidbey Island, which was the perfect introduction to the Pacific Northwest. I loved it. I still can't get over that it was less than five minutes from the beach from where we were living. I can't even tell you how many times I'd sneak off and just go, <sighs> the air and smell. And I probably have a thousand seashells stowed away somewhere. I love living here. We now live in, I think, what a lot of Seattleites call the borderline Canada. We're in the Edmonds, Linwood, Mukilteo area of Seattle, which is great. It's more family focused, a little quieter, and um, you can find parking. So that's cool, too. <laughs> but it's so funny. I've heard from so many people here more than any other city that, oh, I just moved here without a job. Yeah, I'm a millennial. So I think that <laughs> it was natural that I was going to move back in with my parents and uh, start a new career. And before I got pregnant, I was the career focused woman where I'm like, oh, no, my kid's going to daycare. I'm a modern woman. And once I fell in love with her, I decided I wanted a career where I could work from home so I could be with her. And Talkify came around the same time that we moved here. And just as much as I fell in love with the Pacific Northwest, I fell in love with my job. So where did you grow up originally? I'm originally from a very small town in northern Nevada called Winnemucca, where it's less than 10,000 people. I grew up uh, in a street where, no, you don't lock your front door. And it's not just your parents raising you, it's the community. If you're acting up, the neighbors would tell. You knew everybody. I remember going to the grocery store and it would take three hours to get milk and eggs because you would run into everybody you know. My father owned a business. He actually was in the top 10 private privately owned tire stores in the nation in tiny Winnemucca, Nevada, because he's the kind of person that would go out there and he wasn't selling tires. He would sell himself. So he would take pizza and beer to all the mines out there. And some of the mine tires, the mining tires for the big, big machines was where he made his money. I think I learned 
people and intercommunications from being in a small town. So it's it's been night and day living here. That makes a lot of sense, actually. I mean, I grew up here in Seattle, and I spent some time in Walla Walla, which is a smaller town, but not that small. Yeah. And yeah, that, that just like seems like it makes so much sense to me yeah. because you can disappear in a bigger town, whereas you just you have to engage socially with everyone that surrounds you when you're in a smaller collection of people. I think it depends on how you look at it. I think if you come from a small town and you come to a big city, you look at a small town like a warm blanket when you don't feel good. Everybody's there. Everybody's comfy. Everybody's warm. Everybody knows what's going on with you. (laughs) And that can be a good thing or a bad thing. But I think when you come to the city from a small town, it can be an extremely exciting and almost sensory overwhelming place. I, I do have to admit, coming from a small town, still, like, I haven't been there since I was 12, right? So it's been some time. I still see a car that looks familiar to somebody I know, and I have to look and be like, hey, is that John? <laughs> oh, no, that's not John. That's right. We're in a city with multiple millions of people driving around. But I get really excited thinking I'm going to see somebody I know, and that's a small town thing. That's awesome. I feel that way in the opposite way. Like this is the small one of the smallest cities I've lived in. So to me, I actually have the same wonder. But because once in a while I see the one guy who has a Chevy Aveo. I had a friend that um, she drove a green Prius. So being here, I'm like, oh, yeah. wait, you that could be Courtney, 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 Courtney. But then you see your fifth green Prius in a row and you're like, oh, right. Oh, that's right. Yeah. There's so many of little silver cars like mine that. I have to get like a bumper sticker and a license plate cover just so I can find it in the parking lot because there's just so many. Is it a Subaru? Because then you'll never find it. You know what? We haven't officially graduated to the Seattle vehicle yet of the Subaru and or Prius, but we traded in our Jeep for a Hyundai. So we're taking baby steps. But isn't, isn't Jeep kind of Pacific Northwest or no? Really, Subaru is, is the car of choice. They are suited. For here. Well, I learned to drive in snow, right? Right, and that's true. It's more of a snow car, right? When we moved from Winnemucca, we moved to Reno. And a lot of people think that Nevada doesn't get all four seasons. They get all four seasons, just so you know. It is so night and day different from here, those all four seasons. I think you have like a five-year limit of moving here. And you have to buy a Subaru. You have to buy a rain jacket, rain boots. And you have to at least have one local hotspot that nobody knows about. Like, how have you never been to bloody blah blah? It's great. This week's show is titled The Seattle Automotive Experience. <laughs> yeah. We discuss the Subaru versus Prius controversy. Yeah, <laughs> Uh, I drove like the worst car for the Pacific Northwest, which is a Mustang, which sucks here. It's great on the highway. It's fantastic if you go south. Fantastic if you go east. Mm-hmm. But anywhere north, yeah. But how do you get from west to east in the winter? Well, you go south. (laughs) (laughs) Or you just hope to God it's rain instead of snow. Right. You go south to California and then up. It takes much longer. What were some of the... Some of the things that were the hardest to adjust to, other than the size of the city when you moved from Nevada? Um, It is amazing how different things are. Like, I feel so country compared to city. It's ridiculous. So... It's small things. So the weather, for example. Where I'm from in Nevada, it's over 300 days of sunshine. So this is the most pale I've ever been in my entire life. Your bread 
gets moldy here. In Nevada, it gets stale. Also, the temperature degree. Let's say in the summer in Nevada, it would be 100 degrees for a high and it would go down to 50 or 60 for a low. Well, here it's like, oh, the high is 85 and the low is 79. And I'm like, that's really not a change. Like you don't realize the difference. And there's just little nuances. Like things are green here. I don't know if you guys have looked around, but we live in a very (laughs) green place. It's the Emerald City. People, the political climate, everything's completely different. And I think a lot of people are afraid of change. I think it's an awesome change for me and my family. What about socially? How have you find the people to be different? The way in which they communicate, hang out? I feel having discussed where I'm from in a small town and then moving to Reno, which is a really bigger small town. I do find that people aren't as friendly, but I think it's an industry-related unfriendly. I find that coming from the service-related industry of Nevada, where you have to have customer service, you have to have those tight-knit interpersonal relationships, those communications, that community sense, you have to have that belonging. Here, everybody's on their computer. Or they're on their phone. So you don't have to be nice to strangers on the street. I mean, I have a really cute little girl, so I do get lots of grandmas and grandpas who say hi. But it it was a really hard transition because I'm the kind of person that smiles at everybody and not getting smiles back. I'm like, hey, buddy, why are you so grumpy? And now I'm like, oh, I get it. You're just a tech brain. I got it. You're good. No, God, back east, if someone smiles at you, it's like a big deal. Yeah. In New York, it's potentially like a threat if you smile at somebody. It's yeah. weird. And the further west you go, the more people smile. When I first moved here, that was a hard adjustment for me. I would freak out. Somebody would smile at me and I'd be like, what? What Who? What do you want? Stop. Like it was anxiety inducing. Yeah. It took time to just be like, oh, you just genuinely like other humans. So the Seattle freeze, was it chilly for you? Were you, were you did you find it hard to make friends? I think that whatever your interests are is a great way to make friends. I think anytime you're an adult, it's a little bit harder. Like in elementary school, you're like, I have a pink bow in my hair. I like yellow balloons. We're best friends. Like it's easier to make friends when you're in college or even like in jobs and things like that. But here, I think that you make deeper friendships too. Like I have made some really great friends and some really great people because of common interests, but I think laughter is the uniting factor, where you can laugh at certain things. You can laugh at the community. You can laugh at the weather. You can laugh about a lot of things. And I think that um, once people here warm up, it's the friendliest city. You just have to get through the icy barrier. I think you made a good point there because, so like as our, I don't know, resident local Seattleite, trying to find like-minded people is much more difficult as an adult because, yeah, so many of your friendships are forged in school or throughout all the ages, right? Elementary school, middle school, high school, college. You you form these friendships that are very contextual based on your shared experiences. And so I think as an adult, sometimes you end up in these freeze situations because you have people that are put into a social situation together that haven't ended up there because they actually have a shared interest they're just literally physically in the same location but they disagree with each other about what they think is funny or fun or anything like that and so then you get these situations where people start to try to have it at social interactions and then one or the other is like oh actually I don't like your sense of humor I don't like whatever it is then Seattleites being kind of like 
you know, afraid of saying anything as it is, find that the like, easiest way out is to just like, disappear. <laughs> and so I, I, it's like a, an inherent social anxiety yeah. for adults in Seattle to not just be like, you know what, I think our interests aren't aligned. Yeah. No hard feelings. I'm just going to go. We're just like, nope, we're going to ghost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. You can definitely debate whether or not the freeze exists. But in doing research for the show, I sort of looked up Seattle dating. Is Seattle a hard place to date? And there are real statistics showing that it definitely is one of the hardest cities to date. And we're known that way. Even I actually, you know those maps that they started publishing of like what the number one thing that's Googled in every state is? Yeah. The word that is Googled the most in the state of Washington is heartbreak. Oh, that sounds so Seattle, though, <laughs> yeah. like Nirvana, but also like <laughs> yeah. Postal Service, Death Cab, Pacific <laughs> Northwest. I'm sorry. You know, I really do feel like seasonal affective disorder plays a giant factor on probably 98 percent of the population here. And as somebody who works in dating as well as rating dates, you know, and how people feel. It is a huge difference when people are in cloudy weather and they're cold and they just, they're lonely during the holidays and everything. The date quality goes down. But when you're in Seattle and you have like, what, 14 hours of sunshine a day and it's 80 degrees so it's not too hot, people are like, I will be friends with everybody. I will go on 12 dates. But Seasonal affective disorder is real. I know I personally suffer from it. I have family members that suffer from it. And I know a lot of people who do. And I think that plays a factor in the Seattle freeze where it's not necessarily like we don't like newcomers. It's more, I'm so sad. I want to drink coffee and go to bed rather than go on a date. And I get it. I really do. Percentage wise, do you deal with a majority of clients that moved here within the last few years or clients that grew up here? That's a really good question. I would say I have, you know, I'd say two thirds of my clients are outsiders because of that Seattle freeze, because of that change, because it's really hard. I think that because Seattle, Bellevue, the whole entire region is expanding with a lot of people who are coming in for job opportunities from other places in the country. What you have is you have the Seattle culture and identity and people who have been here however long. And then you have all these new people who are coming in and trying to change things or trying to be a part of it or maybe even mocking it. It can be very um, conflicting. And also, too, the dating market is really, in today's world, is really challenging because you have too many options. In Seattle, you have, it's I think it's 17 men to every 100 women because of all the tech jobs coming in. So there's a greater population of men than women, which seems challenging, but it's the tech personalities that are coming in and changing that. So if you're a girl who likes video games and technology, you're, you're set, <laughs> you right? are set. <laughs> but if you're a woman who hates technology and hates video games, you're going to have a hard time finding those other kinds of men. What are some of the common complaints and challenges you get from clients when you first meet them? I, I do a lot of them start dating on their own in Seattle and then find their way to you? Or do they just give up immediately? I read Seattle sucked to dating. I'm just having a professional handle this. I'm not even going <laughs> to, I'm not even going to wait in. That's a really good question too. I think a lot of people automatically go into the apps. I think it's like, oh, well, this is how you meet people now. So I have to do 
Tinder, Bumble, Match, you know, Coffee Meets, Bagel, all of the different dating sites. I mean, I think there's like 20 or 30 of them. It's it's crazy. So I think people hit the apps first and then they realize that apps aren't working. And the reason why apps don't work is because it's like I said, that surplus of options and opportunities. If you look at our parents and our grandparents, they grew up in, once again, smaller communities, even in the cities where you met people face-to-face organically. You got to know them. You got to know their family. You got to pick up on everything. But your pool of potential matches was a lot smaller. You'd be in neighborhoods. You'd be in, you know, whatever proximity it is. Um, Fast forward, we now have apps where I could swipe somebody who lives in New York or New Jersey and try to communicate and have a relationship with that person. So the opportunities are endless, but that also means that we are becoming much pickier and more selective because once again with more opportunities you're now being more picky and fine-tuned and you're looking for what I like to call and what we like to call the unicorn and unicorn chasing can be very challenging but as a matchmaker we at Talkify specifically my matchmaking style is if you always do what you always did you always get what you always got And that's saying any one of my clients can tell you that they hate me saying that over and over. But the reason why I know it works is because it works for me. And it worked for other people I know, too. I met my husband and then we were friends first. And I never was going to date someone who had children. I was not going to be a stepmom. And I did something I would normally not do. And I met this amazing person that gives me butterflies every time he's on his way home. And I think that it's possible for people to do that if you break out of your dating patterns. Having a matchmaker or a third party come in, being able to maybe help you decide what what's really important and what's not so important opens up a new opportunity. You know, that's really interesting because I feel like there's a lot of corollaries to that with the design world because a lot of the time, let's say you are remodeling your house and you're going to, I don't know, add a couple extra bedrooms, maybe remodel your kitchen, blah, blah, blah. It's not uncommon that people will come in thinking that they know what they want, you know, have all these ideas that they think is what they want. When it comes down to it, those ideas, while they are not invalid, they might be really cool examples of really great things that, yes, they do look amazing. And yeah, we agree with you. They look awesome. But in the context of your particular situation and your particular um, nuances of how you like to live your life matter in how you experience your physical spaces in the same way that they, that they matter when it comes to finding somebody that you're going to spend all your time with. There seems to be this really close corollary between designing who who you are going to enjoy spending your time with is the same way that you're designing how you would enjoy spending your time in a space. I've heard a lot about this whole, there's a, there's actually a term for it. I forget what it is, but it's this, because of apps in general, whether it's uh, dating, whether it's design, whether it's retail, we all can have the specific perfect thing for us at any moment. And that we believe that no matter what it is we are consuming or experiencing, it needs to meet that bar, even in areas of life where that is completely unachievable or unrealistic and that price shouldn't matter and that time shouldn't matter and that there should be no barriers because so many barriers are lifting for us all the time. But I'm glad you brought up design because your service is not only meeting with your clients and understanding who they are and matching them up with people, but you also plan the dates as well. And I am so curious about 
internally what the process is like for you and how you break down these two people and imagine what this experience is going to be like because obviously for many reasons you want this to be conducive for another data and another data to be the catalyst to make that as easy as possible so how do you go about it what's your process like so date planning is right up there with matchmaking and talking to people. I love talking to people because a lot of people say who they are without actually saying it in words, right? So you pick up a personality, you pick up, you know, characteristics. One of my favorite questions to ask potential matches as well as my clients are, why are you single? Do you fault others or do you fault yourself? Do you fault the area? Do you fault time? That gives me a really good idea of what your personality is and how you like to date. How many apps are you on? How active are you dating? So once you get, you know, that for any potential matches, I always have my clients do a personality profile. And, you know, the easiest one is the Myers-Briggs 16 personalities, just so I get an idea of how they do in social situations, as well as when I talk to them, I pick up on their personality. You know, it's that small town interpersonal relationship skill that you obtain learning to read people you know learning that from my father owning a business as well as I studied psychology specifically behavioral psychology so for me it's about you know what people are saying and once I determine a good match based on personality interests all that stuff then I pick a location based on that and I find that usually for most people happy hour dates during the work week tend to be the best because you're meeting someone in person. You're not across a dinner table. Like Charles, you and I are across the table. Can you imagine trying to talk about like something personal and intimate, but in a loud crowded restaurant, whereas you and I are right next to each other. So we can be a little bit closer and have a more intimate experience. That's where the drinks and appetizers dates come in and you get a closer sense of somebody. Another one I like to do is, you know, depending on on the couple. For example, I had a, a really adventure-seeking couple where he ran multiple marathons and did Ironman and stuff like that for, you know, ever. And then um, she loved to run marathons and travel and hike mountains. So their first date was actually a scavenger hunt in Pike Place Market that I arranged where... I came up with 10 things he needed to find and 10 things she needed to find. And they had to do it together and make a memory down there. But they started off with, once again, that coffee, drink, appetizer, and then they did the date. And it ended up sure. being Giving really them fun. this collaborative thread of yeah. that they both are competitors. Mm-hmm. And then they're giving a thing that they can share together. Absolutely. Some people, especially introverts and a lot of the Seattle, you know, technology analytical personalities, what they do is they do really well in a very calm social situation, especially if you come from a quiet office where you're in your in your mind. The last thing you want to do is go to a karaoke bar with crazy people. You want to go somewhere, maybe by the water, have a glass of wine, relax. Whereas if you're somebody like me who's an extrovert and I get all of my energy being around people and talking to people, send me to a karaoke bar on a date. I'm going to thrive. So it just depends on the person and the personality. And then, you know, that that's my favorite thing. And then also word of mouth. I think that I have a soft spot setting dates up near water because I'm from the desert. So I think there's a part of me that's like, um, there is water here. Guess what? There are whales in that water and octopi and everything crazy. Go on this date. 
Um, no matter how you see it, I think water has a, a tranquil experience sure. to it. I think we've had guests talk about this on the show in the past about acoustics and what it is like in restaurants and bars these days. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people just being like, oh my God, it is too loud. I can't even hear what you're saying. But on the other hand, there's other people that are like, no, I love the energy. It feels so good. You know, so there's really two camps. And, and I think there's really legitimate motivations, both in the camps of people that are the clientele in the restaurants, but then also the people that are dealing with the acoustics because they own the place and they have different motivations for why they want it loud or not loud. Is that a, one of the factors that you think about of like these personalities need to be in a loud, vibrant environment? It's going to be a busy restaurant and they can barely hear each other. It's going to make them have to stand closer together or these people won't handle that well. It'll stress them out. We need to find them somewhere quiet. Is that one of the factors that you think about? Absolutely. Another factor that I go into um, with my clients, I like to give homework. So I'll have them do like all these like quizzes and things just so I can get to know them better. Matchmaking is about setting up on compatibility as well as what the person finds attractive. But I really am a firm believer that environment plays a huge factor in whether this date is going to be successful or not. And like you said, you know, some people want to do the the loud, crazy, have to lean in. But um, if your love language, like the five love languages, which is a great book, there's a quiz you can take online. It takes five minutes to learn what your love language is. If your love language ranks very low on personal touch and your matches is very high, they may be a little bit more inclined to be touchy and reach around, you know, grab your hand or something or whatever when you're in the bar and you're like, whoa, no. (laughs) So that's another little nuance and factor and tool I like to use when picking a location is if somebody really likes to have deep communication, I don't like to set them up in a restaurant where it's busy and there's a waiter like, I got to go home. You know, I like to set them at a up at a place where they can grab a drink and maybe go for a walk or be able to spend that quality time with someone. So location really depends on a lot of different factors. Also, Yelp is great. Google's great. Um, I try to go to all the venues that I set people up at. Even if I don't attend, I like to go at least look around to get an idea. Do you feel like there is like an unfulfilled place in the market for bars or restaurants where there are people that are looking for a certain environment and it just isn't there in this town and you don't know where to send them to the perfect place? Is there there an empty space that needs filling? For a city that's so small, it's amazing how many people don't want to leave their neighborhoods. If you live in Belltown, you don't even want to think about going to Green Lake. If I live in Capitol Hill and you live in Queen Anne, I'm not going to, why would I swipe? Don't even get me started on the other side of the lake. Like, hello, that is like a catastrophe waiting to happen. So if you... <laughs> oh, they're on the east side, yeah. Yeah, oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no. She's know. a geneticist model, but oh, east side, yeah. no, sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's true. It really is. Like, that bridge is a thousand miles, apparently. It is a problem. I've had people who are like, Tacoma is the far east. Like, I'm never going to Tacoma. And then I have people in Tacoma who are like, why would I go to Seattle? That's so far north. That's Canada. And I'm like, whoa, guys, <laughs> let's calm down here. It's a person <laughs> you're meeting, not a city. Like, people can move. You, I think a lot of people are more fluid and more mobile than they think. I, I think you work a long day. You're in traffic. You're like, I just want to go home and have dinner. What you feel to realize is dating needs to be fun. And like the atmosphere. I mean, each little neighborhood has its own really cool bar that would fit your personality or coffee shop or restaurant or whatever it is. I mean, it just depends on 
where you live and what you're looking for. And the best way to find a great date location is to go out with your friends and see people and see people engaging and interacting in that environment. If it's like a bro bar and everybody's wearing Seahawks jerseys and high-fiving each other, maybe not a great place to take that supermodel geneticist that lives in Bellevue. (laughs) Maybe you should... Think about taking her to somewhere a little bit more refined, like Purple Cafe in downtown, things like that. So go to your venues. Check out the scene. When you meet someone, make it casual. Keep it under two hours. Two drink maximum. Get some food. Get in close proximity with someone. And then give it a second date. And a lot of people don't agree with that. But your first date is just dipping your toes in the water. And that's part of the atmosphere is if you're completely rigid and uncomfortable and it took you, you know, 15 minutes to find parking and you're all pissed off and you're angry and I don't even know if my car is safe here. And then you meet at the venue, you're already in a mood that's going to set you up for failure. But if you find a great venue, you find a great personality, you're calm, you're relaxed, and you just go in saying, is there enough here? I want to learn more. Then you go in more optimistic. And the second date, it's like reuniting with someone. You're more familiar with what to do. That's a really interesting point. I don't think that I've heard expressed in that way, but it's it, like it's oh, it's so dead on that they, there's more stressors, right? So like you're like, is my car going to be towed? Is my uh, I don't, you know, I don't know. Like, are, are there more things that you that you find that your clients have to deal with? That they have on the back of their minds that they cannot just set aside for long enough to spend a good couple hours really actually paying attention fully to whoever they're meeting. Totally, there are so many factors, right, that go into it. There's my parking. There's I have a dog at home, like a new puppy. I have to run home to, and then. We live in such a cool and progressive and unique area where everybody is smart and opinionated and they all have something important to say. But sometimes you don't have to share those things. I encourage people, (laughs) and this is definitely something that I've had clients disagree with me on, but trust me on this. No matter how you feel about Jesus Christ and Donald Trump, Do not invite them to the dinner table because they do not romance make. Even if you are 100% simpatico with someone, even if you are 100% on the same page about religion and politics, neither of those guys are going to have sex appeal, right? You you do want to kiss the person at some point when you're on a date. Don't bring those people up. Also, another thing people like to do is they like to talk about dates or bad dates. What happens when you're talking about your 30 failed Bumble and Tinder dates? What you're doing is you're relating to your date, like, ha, 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 look at this person. And then they're thinking in the back of their mind, wow, you went on 30 dates? Like, what's going on here? Like, are there dead bodies in your closet? What's going on? So another bad topic, too, is past dates. So with, you know, Being sensitive to the seasonal affective disorder with location, with going in with the right frame of mind, not having the rushed park and the rush to get here from work and everything, and then avoiding those topics. Dating in Seattle can be a completely different climate. It's just about being aware of all those things. You know, to be completely honest, the dating market is just like the stock market when it comes to finding somebody. So when there's chaos in the world around us, I mean, if 
if our president or there's something politically going on, like if we had to go to war tomorrow with North Korea, would you be wondering if you're going to go on a date and what to wear on Friday? Or would you be more concerned with the goings on in the world? So a lot of people like during the election was insane. And the month after the election, people were like, I'm not dating, I'm mourning. And so <laughs> there are so many factors that go into your dating life that you don't consider. So it's not just Seattleites who are having unsuccessful dating experiences. You asked about if people like to date local Seattleites, natives, or outsiders. I I've only had the one client who wanted to date another outsider, but for the most part, I find that you bring an identity with you when you come to Seattle and you share it with the community, right? Like I'm all sorts of small towns, so I'm waving at everybody and I don't care about the Seattle freeze. I'm going to smile at you and tell you to have a great day. But you bring you bring your culture and identity and community with you to Seattle. If somebody's a native, they don't want to know what things were like in New York or Dallas or Colorado. They want to know what things are like around them here. That's another thing is you're looking at a culture when you're setting somebody up. That's one of the many aspects of matchmaking that I think that you get from having a matchmaker from Talkify versus, you know, going on Bumble, Tinder, Hinge, any of those sites. You don't get to see those nuances. You don't get to talk to the person before you go on another date going to a restaurant where it's the same conversation. Where did you go to school, Charles? Are your parents still together? Yada, yada, yada. It's the same thing with a different face. And that's why people get frustrated dating. Whereas like a matchmaker, we pop in and we're like, hey, guess what? We're here to help. And we're here to help in a different way. And my experience that I bring to my clients is once again, if you always do what you always did, you always get what you always got. And I let them know up front, I want to find what you're looking for. But I'm going to throw the, you know, I'm going to throw you some curveballs and see how that goes. So I switch up the location every time for a date. They don't all go to Bottle House, right, or Purple. They go to different venues to find where they feel the most comfortable. Um, if they only date men who are 55 to 60, I'm going to set them up with a 50-year-old or a 62-year-old that's super fit and hiking, right? So I'm going to flip the switch on them because what they're doing is they're singling out people that they could be finding on their own, but they need somebody there to help guide them. And that's what I love to do with the background in psychology, with being happily married to my best friend, with seeing my parents together who have been married for like 500 years or whatever. You, you're able to give people hope and opportunity. You've been married for over five years now. You understand what it's like to have that person and you're able to spread that joy to singles in my occupation. And that's the one thing I like to radiate and, and give the gift of hope. What are some of the craziest places you've sent people on a date? You're just like, you know what? I'm going to take a shot. I'm going to send them. Um... I have a client that loves dive bars, right? So I like to send them. Um, if you feel comfortable going to a dive bar with stools that are sticky and maybe some people that just got out of jail, go for it. I will set you up there. But understand, your match may be really uncomfortable. If that's your environment, that may not be their environment necessarily. So let me give you an example. I'm a karaoke queen. I can do it sober. I can do it after a few. I usually forget what I sing after a few. But I can go up there on stage off key 
sing some journey, get around my people, right? <laughs> um, my husband would rather die, die than get on stage and sing. He barely sings in front of me. Now we go to the you know, karaoke bars together because it's a fun environment for both of us. He can be a cheerleader and have fun and listen to other people and I can sing, but we can enjoy that venue together. Same thing with a dive bar. If you like the trashy, dirty, give me my bar nuts and, you know, my Pabst and whiskey shot and give me my gross, your match may not be 100% comfortable in that environment, even though your personalities match. Right. Or if you've had a long day, the last thing you want to do is deal with bikers. Like, you know, so so the environment is such a huge factor. I've had one guy who wanted to go to a five star restaurant that was over six hundred dollars a person. I think that's actually more extreme than the dive bar. And the reason why he wanted it was because he enjoyed it and he wanted to share it with a beautiful person. My feeling is, is you're going in with so much pressure an expectation, what are you going to do? You're going to crumble, right? Like if you go in to a job interview and you've been sweating bullets and you're nervous and you walk in and they're like, um, you know, hi, nice to meet you. You know, why are you interested in applying here? You're like, oh, I need to pay off my student loans. You're not focusing on the person. You go into the date and you have this high pressure situation and it's like, oh, well, it's very nice to meet you. You know, thanks for taking the time out. And you're like, I haven't had a date in six months. And my mom's asking why I don't have kids. And this is horrible. <laughs> like, if you go into a date like that, and it's $600 a person, you're going to fail. I'm sorry. Yeah. Which, once again, dating needs to be fun. And Seattle is a fun city. There are opportunities. Go to a baseball game, buy a $20 hot dog, and just go have fun, right? Like, go be a part of the culture in this city. Bond with your person organically in this amazing environment we have, and stop swiping on the apps. That was, uh, when I was doing research for the show, there were, I think, three factors that were particularly poignant in Seattle for why it had become so hard because uh, women in Seattle apparently by and large complain a lot that men do not approach them or ask them out. And the fact that, and this ties back to a lot of things you were saying before, we are such a well-read, well-educated, politically active uh, populace. Women in this city don't necessarily need someone to support them in those areas. And so according to the article, men in Seattle feel not needed. And the article's bent was one of the psychological needs of a single man is to be needed. <laughs> and that there is simply not, there's no connection for these two groups to find because one group says, well, I don't need you. And the other person says, well, I'm looking for someone who needs me. It's so true. Yeah. And what you're looking at too is you're looking at different generations of single people. So in my business, I have had clients as young as 30 and as old as 65. So I've had a wide range of generations. And how you're brought up, what generation you're a part of, is what you're looking at for the traditional gender stereotypes or the cultures. So a lot more baby boomers are more willing, the men are more willing to go to dinner and pay for the entire check and have that expectation. They're more okay and comfortable. 
approaching a woman organically. Whereas if you go to Gen X men, they were taught that women and men are equal, but men need to be more sensitive and women need to be stronger. So Gen X men are in this you know really uncomfortable place where it's like, is it okay if I come talk to you? Can I pass you a note? Like, is this okay? I just want you to know I respect you. I know you're smart. I know you're an individual. May I please have a conversation with you? We'll split the tab, right? Then you have the millennial generation, which there's two sets of millennials. Uh, you know, you have the pre-September 11th, pre-social media millennials, and then the after, where you have, you know, the millennials, the women are like, dude, Give me those 1950s manly men. And so it's like you're looking at a completely different generation. Again, I think I read that article too. Women are independent and they don't need somebody. But I can tell you every single client I have has money. They have the looks. They have the house. They have everything. But they're missing the one thing and that's the person to share it with. So even if they don't come off immediately needed, everybody needs that person. Do you enjoy or look for a challenge in a client? Like what would be if somebody gave you like, here is the most challenging client? I, I think it depends on the matchmakers. I've never, um, I don't know if there's anything as challenging as people who don't believe they're worthy of love. Mm. That's my most challenging. I mean, if you're looking for, quote, the unicorn person, we're going to work on that. And I'm going to do everything I can within my human power to be able to find that person for you. But it's the people who don't fundamentally have a core belief that they're worthy of love that are the ones that are the most challenging. Do you have multiple matchmakers that field the same region or something like that. So that is, is it actually a thing that you have matchmaking for matchmakers so that, so that like there are certain types of clients that you are the perfect person to figure them out and find the right match. Ooh. Or do you have like a colleague that's like, Oh no, 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 this person is perfect for my colleague to find. Like they're going to really zone in and know, like see what they're really trying to say when they can express it themselves. Is that a, like, what do you call that? Like internal matchmaking yeah. match ma matchmaking of matchmakers with their matchmaking clients oh like God. what is it yeah is that yeah. a thing no totally <laughs> so we at talkify we have a lot of different departments and we have a member services team so you actually have to be approved to be a client based on what you're looking for and once you've been approved as a client what happens is you're paired with a matchmaker that best fits your personality your so we as matchmakers we go through a pretty rigorous hiring process. We do a lot of interviews, a lot of video chats. You have to be really comfortable in your skin as well as your what you what you believe. My core value and, you know, I I'm super lame. Like the one thing I believe in more than anything is love for yourself, for others, for whatever your passion is, right? So I'm an eternal optimist, but once again, I've taken that 16 personalities quiz and I'm the campaigner. So I'm the advocate for my clients. I'm the one that's like, you got to check out XYZ, right? She's amazing. This is what she brings to the table. And this is why I think you two would get along, right? I'm, an, I'm a campaigner. I see the bright side in everybody. And some matchmakers are going to be a lot more analytical. Right? Like they're gonna be the ones that are like, all right, she's looking for someone who's six foot two, 
BMI score of 20. <laughs> like you have very analytical people who do well. But what happens is you need people like me to break the analytical people out of their shell. You need to take dating is a feeling place, right? You can create a robot. You know, this isn't weird science. Like, if you want the perfect woman and you can create her, I'm excited for you. But I deal in reality and real people, and that's emotions. And especially if I'm setting up a man with a woman or a woman with a man, it doesn't matter. There's emotions on all sides. I've worked with lesbians. I've worked with, you know, gay men. It doesn't matter. There's always somebody who's more emotional and somebody who's less emotional. And when you're dealing with emotional people, you have to put your heart into it. And I'm all heart. To a fault, right? It's it's probably my strongest asset as a matchmaker and also my downside because I'm there doing cartwheels when a date goes well. My favorite thing is, oh my gosh, she kissed me and it's great. Like I'm beaming the whole entire day. Like it's ridiculous. If a date doesn't go well, I don't take it personally. I'm like, oh no, get you another one I promise you we'll get you an even better one we take what we learn and we get the date feedback and we go forward and we get stronger matches and so um you know I most of my clients would probably tell you that I'm obnoxiously cheery but I'm also going to tell you to your face if if you're talking about your ex for 45 minutes on a date I'm gonna tell you knock it off right you know if you're if you're gonna bring up a certain you know, person in the Oval Office, you're going to turn off some audiences. So I'm going to let you know because I care about you. And so I'm a very caring matchmaker. But once again, to a fault. It's a, it's a blessing and a curse. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for, for coming in and chatting with us. It's like a ton of fun. I learned a ton. Oh, good. I, thank you so much. I had so much fun. It was so great getting to know you guys and being here. My email is D-A-N-I at Talkify, T-A-W-K-I-F-Y.com. My calling in this job was I found my person and I'd like to share that joy with other people. So if you have any questions, don't hesitate to email. And thank you very much for listening. Our next night school event will be right around the corner, so keep a lookout on our social media for that. It will be held here at Board and Vellum on 15th Avenue in Capitol Hill. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter or on the blog at boardandvellum.com. There's always super cool stuff being posted there. And as always, please stop on by anytime for a chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again, and we'll see you all in a few weeks.